Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Percival Everett about his new novel, Telephone. Yeah, so one of the things that is unusual about this novel and that we get into right away in this conversation and that we should tell our listeners about is that there's actually three different versions of it. They were all published simultaneously. Kate and I, I think, you know, once we talked about it a little bit more, I think we did have different versions. Huh. Um, yeah. So that requires us kind of getting further into the ending. So we, we're not going to do that for spoiler purposes in the introduction, but Right. Um, but spoiler alert, we will get it into the conversation. So I tried to figure out the other two endings and I couldn't find that information anywhere. So I think me and you should check in in more detail about what our endings were with the book. Oh, because I, yeah, now that we've talked about it, I suspect that they were different. Huh. Kate, have you read any of Percival Everett's work? Before? No, actually, this was my first novel by him. The other book that I'd read is I Am Not Sidney Poitier, and that is a, a very funny, interesting book where the main character is named not Sidney Poitier, but then the things that keep happening to them are the things that happen to Sidney Poitier. It's very playful and interesting, and, and Percival, like this, this play with the three different endings and the three different versions of the book, is a really interesting, formally playful, smart writer, and uh, long been interested to talk to him. Yeah. All right, should we get to it? All right, let's, let's listen. Today we are joined remotely by the acclaimed writer Percival Everett. Percival is the author of many novels, short story collections, and collections of poetry as well. He is perhaps best known, well, to me, perhaps to the world as well, for his satirical metafictional novels, Erasure, I Am Not Sidney Poitier, and Percival Everett by Virgil Russell, which is a title of a book. His latest novel is called Telephone, and it follows a paleontologist named Zach Wells, whose beloved daughter, Sarah, is diagnosed with Batten's disease. As Sarah rapidly deteriorates, Zach also becomes obsessed with a note that he found in a used jacket pocket, which is when he was asking for help. He travels to New Mexico to investigate who is sending the note, and the novel diverges from there because... There's a big secret about this book that was revealed in May and um, when the book was published, which is that the book actually has three different versions that were published simultaneously with three different endings. Kate, my co-host and I, we don't know which version we got. So we are we're gonna talk through it. And Percival will do, as he said, nothing to help us in figuring it out. Thank you so much, Percival, for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first of all, maybe we could start there with the endings. And it's not just the ending, right? There are small differences in the three versions of the books as well. And I'm curious how that came about and why you decided to publish the book that way. I've always been fascinated by the fact that everyone reads separately. Now, reading is the most subversive thing we can do. And no one's inside our heads deciding how we edit and how we receive but there's always a discussion that goes on whether 
readers want to admit it or not about what the writer intended. And I believe it doesn't matter at all what the writer intends. In fact, the writer is the last person on the planet who can actually state in any significant way what the work is about. I became interested not in the authority of the writer, but the authority of the reader, because that's really when the work of art gets made, is when that circuit is completed. Well, it's interesting that you say that, because the other way potentially of reading this kind of the differences in the versions is that it is a sort of assertion of authorial control, right? That you can, in fact, decide how and where this story goes, and that the characters within that story, Zach Wells and Sarah and the other people, are actually quite under your control as the author, just to play devil's advocate. Yeah, I can certainly decide how the events unfold, but I cannot decide what any of it means. There are as many different ways to read a story as there are people who read them. Not one is more correct than the other. So having literal different versions of the story circulating, that feels like it opens up like further interpretations. But there's not one static story here. You're making me sound a lot smarter than I am. No, I just want to do <laughs> what would happen. Memory is an interesting thing anyway. The theory of memory that I think is probably most correct is that we reconstruct things every time we tell them. There is no thing in our heads that we remember. And the same is true of stories. This is why stories change as people tell them over and over again. That's why memories change. It's why we can have discussions with each other. I remember when you did this and someone says, no, you didn't do that. Or I didn't do that. And there's nothing wrong there. There's nothing incorrect. It's just the way stories work. I have no control over any meaning. And I know this because when I go, and the most exciting part about writing is people will tell me what they think I've meant. They'll say, did you mean this? And my response is always, well, of course, because it sounds great. And I may not have thought of it at all. How different are the endings that come about? In what sequence did you write those endings? Well, it's how it ends is not, those aren't the only differences. There are differences throughout the novel. Some are very subtle. Some are rather significant. Two endings are, I think, alike. One ending is different. Again, it's not about where the novel goes. It's about what the novel means. And small changes seem to affect the tone and the direction that someone believes the novel has gone. I wanted to ask you about what kind of reader you were when you started reading, because your interest in readership and the power of readership, I wonder if that was formed when you were a younger reader. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I <laughs> never actually thought about it. I never read children's books. As a child, you read as adult a, books. As a child, I, now as a father, I've read many, and I think they're great, but I didn't really have kids' books growing up. I had a lot of Lewis Carroll through the Looking Glass mm-hmm. and Alice, and a book that I really loved strangely was Lewis Carroll's Symbolic Logic because I couldn't understand it. And then as an older kid, you know, about nine or so, I discovered my father's bookshelf and ended up reading Of Human Bondage, which just seemed really like I shouldn't be reading it. And that was an informative experience for me, not only about stories, but about myself, that I enjoyed the idea that not only was I reading something that was probably too difficult for me, but something that shouldn't have been available to me. 
I don't think that's true that it shouldn't have been, but that's how I felt then. And how did you start writing? What was that process like? No, I, <laughs> you have to remember I'm old. I remember the first time I picked up a chisel and stone. Uh huh. Uh huh. Thank uh, you for inventing writing. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, someone had to do it. My mother would claim when I was an adult that I kept a notebook full of writing, and I don't remember it at all. In high school, I wrote a play that was essentially a protest against what was called the Drama Festival. And then when I was studying philosophy I, in graduate school, I'd always been a reader, so I simply started writing. It wasn't a lifelong dream. It just kind of became a better way for me to do philosophy. And you've talked about how your father, your grandfather, they were all doctors. Was that ever something that had been expected of you? Or you know, were you sort of allowed to decide what you wanted to do? I was very lucky. My parents were really supportive in whatever I wanted to try. I never, even though I studied science in college and in philosophy, I studied mathematical logic, I had no desire to be a doctor. Having grown up with so many of them around, I wasn't terribly impressed. That sounds bad the way it sounds, but, but, but I, I, I wasn't enthralled with the idea. My sister is, in fact, a physician as well. So she didn't escape whatever it was that I didn't know I was supposed to escape. So the character in this novel is a scientist, is a paleontologist, and is in academia. Did your own experience growing up in a family of scientists of a sort affect this character's depiction at all? I don't think so. I often have characters from different professions. I have a sheriff's deputy, a baseball player. There's a vet, a veterinarian an obstetrician, a hydrologist, a rancher. How do you choose the professions of your characters? You know, I, I'm often amazed at just the creation of art. I don't know how that happens. And you start with 500 blank pages and all of a sudden they're filled with words. A lot of it's magic. And I don't know if it pays to question it too much. I'm usually interested in a, an idea and often the same idea is recurring through several books, and I look for characters that will help me address that. My best answer is I don't know. Well, I see. Well, here, you know, this is someone who is in touch with a very, very deep, eternal form of time, but at the same time is reacting to a situation that seems to unfold like rather quickly, not only with his daughter, but with trying to find these people who are asking for help where he is having to kind of be on his feet often and just be very much in the moment. That definitely seems like a contrast to me that his profession is to look at static forms. And yet this novel has a lot of action and tons of plot, really. I guess it's part of what comes in this is the significance of the fact that he works in a cave. And caves have, for some reason, shown up in my work before my novel Wounded, I did months of research going into caves. It turned out I didn't really have to do it to write the novel, but I did the research anyway. And in this novel, as you say that, I can see that some of the very same things about caves come to play in this work. One of the things about caves is we have almost an instinctual fear of them. We see a cave and nobody just runs into a dark cave because that's where the monsters live something's wrong in there, something's scary. And when you go into a cave, there's always that light that you've left, and you can always return to it, and that's your safety. 
But as you go deeper into it, I call it a sort of space of interstitial anxiety, where things start to turn around. And you don't want to go back to that light that's safe, but you become familiar enough with the cave that you simply want to go deeper into it. And that's the space that I'm interested in in this novel, as it was in the last one. And it's not until you mentioned it that I remembered that caves play it, the fact that he works in this cave. And it's called Knott's Cave, which doesn't exist, but Knott means nothing. It's a cave with nothing in it. One of the other ideas that struck me as I was reading this book and that it seems like Zach, the main character, struggles with is what can people do to really help other people? Which seems like a particularly, I don't know, fraught question at the moment as people are figuring out the many ways in which they should be able to help other people. But is that one of the things that you were thinking about as writing this book? This kind of question is like, what can we do? What does a person do? Well, yes, that's one of the driving fears of being a parent is Mm. there's only so much in the world you can do to protect someone. And at some point you have to trust them to be okay. But it's terrifying. A friend asked me once, what was I most afraid of in the world? And, And it's having my family scared. It wasn't losing one. It was the idea of them being terrified. And if they feel that, that's inside and there's nothing I can do. And is that a fear you've had to confront? Luckily, no. But it's the whenever a kid is sick, you see it. I remember my, I was hardly ever sick as a kid, but I did become very sick once. It's a kind of malarial thing. And I was going to visit my parents. And I, as I was driving into their driveway, it hit me and my arms went numb. And I felt chills from a fever. I'd driven from Miami to see them in Columbia, South Carolina. And as I walked past my father, I looked at him and said, I'm sick. And I will never forget the look of fear on his face because he'd never had to see me like that before. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We now return to our conversation with Percival Everett, author of Telephone. I did think as I was reading the book, just it does describe every parent's worst nightmare. And, um, and it was something that you very fearlessly pursue because it's the disease that Sarah, uh, Zach's daughter has. It, it can't be mitigated at all. I mean, there's nothing to be done. Um, and yes. that is just such, such a frightening idea. And, and so I guess it almost made me think of, you know, writing out of something that is your worst fear. And, and if that was something you pictured almost, if that's something that kind of helps you organize what you're going to write about is kind of a questioning within yourself. Like if you just imagine, okay, what, what, what would be the most frightening, terrible thing to me? And, and that's how I'll start writing at all. Or if, the, if you kind of use those internal questions to actually propel you into plot or, and also I, I wondered how your, your writing has changed at all since you've become a parent or if, or if it has. So I didn't think about it certainly consciously, but it is, uh, it's an ever present thing. And and the sadness for, for Zach is, um, that he's going to lose his daughter twice, um, once to dementia and then, then her life. 
and I find that even unbearable to think about um, now. Uh, I think my writing has has changed since having children. I you find you know, I trained horses for twelve years, so I thought I was a fairly patient person. And it's not until you have kids that you realize that you really have to work to be a really patient person. <laughs> and um, and I think that's that's helped my my work a lot. Um, kids are so much smarter than than we are that they've opened up. I think I was losing what I what brought me to art in the first place. This excitement about exploring things and uh, for no other reason except they're there and taking risks and watching my my I have sons watching my two sons every day I'm reminded of just that joy of, of doing something just to do it and and also taking time this is the time is is just flying by and I'm so I've been forced to do things like lie on the ground and look at the sky and just luxuriate and a couple of minutes, just enjoy those minutes of time with them, knowing that it's all fleeting. And that, that sort of puts all my work into perspective, too. It's, it's just books. Right. But, and and has, it, has it helped you kind of tap into the emotional quick of things faster, for instance, than before? That even, yeah, even like I'm a lot in, more honest. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a lot more honest about my feelings. I think I was fairly honest about other people's feelings before, but now I think I'm a lot more honest about my own, and I think that's affected my work. One of the other things that strikes me about the book that that is maybe a, a, a kind of childlike quality is, and this I think this is present in your other books as well, is this sense of a game. So there's there's a literal game that's happening in this book, which is a game that Zach and his daughter play, a game of chess, and mm-hmm. which is also how he first begins to notice that something is maybe wrong with her because um, she's an excellent chess player. But there's also this sense of kind of gameplay with the form. I felt something sort of similar in I Am Not Sydney Poitier, where it's this constant sort of um, a playfulness, a, a gameness. Is that something else that you think about when, you, when you're writing a book? Is that, is that a way to recapture some excitement in terms of you know have some, having something to play with? Yeah. I, I do that, and and I can't tell you that I do it because I naturally do it, or because I have a mission involved. And I mean, I do. I, I think there are layers of of meaning in novels. Mm-hmm. That the more the more play for me there is, the more the more I can achieve. Not in meaning a particular thing, but the more I can mean many things. And also, I I I enjoy games. Why not ask the reader to do the work to decipher some games and and find a we listen, when you listen to music over and over again, especially uh, say orchestral music or or jazz, um, you'll hear instruments the fifth time that you didn't really hear the first time, mm-hmm. and that's what excites me about art. The longer you look at a painting, the more you can see the underpainting, and. I would like to think that readers will come back to the works and read them and have another experience. It, yeah, it, it also adds you know, some, a layer of constraint that I think is interesting for you as a, as a writer, because when you are playing a game, it's playful, but it's also within, a certain, within certain parameters, within certain rules. 
that one also has to follow. So there's also that kind of element that is layered onto it, right? Where one also has to figure out, well, what are the rules of this game? Uh, sure. I, I, yeah. You know, we, you sign a certain contract when you start a book with somebody. I, mean, I suppose I could have had a spaceship land in the middle of a novel, but yeah. that would have been breaking the contract. In this book, right. I, might have, I might have believed it, honestly. Oh, really? Same. <laughs> yeah. Well, it could uh, be a dream. Yeah. A lot of that. Uh, yeah, I guess, um, first of all, it's, I'm sure you're not going to like this question, but if, you know, if someone said, oh, I'm not familiar with your books at all, um, tell me what style are they written in? How would you describe them? Just in, because, because you're, you're, you have such freedom in in the way you write. And I I had a hard time kind of thinking of, you know, I know experimental is a really big umbrella. um, And I think, so I'm, I'm just curious how you describe this, the style of your own work. It's like nothing you've ever read before. (laughs) (laughs) See, I, I honestly believe that 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 any writer can say that about <laughs> any work. I, I don't know. I I do know that my work's not going to pe- appeal to to everyone. And um, have you ever, you know, in terms of other writers, who who do you feel a lot of affinity with? Lawrence Stern. Okay, that's a good um, one. Right, it's true. And, and and my sense of humor has been shaped, I think, pretty significantly by um, by Groucho Marx, Mark Twain, and Bullwinkle. <laughs> um, and I think that's evident in, in, in a lot of uh, a lot of the work. I think some of my um, and in particular works, I think you can find um, homage to uh, not just Stern, but maybe even Chester Himes, and c- certainly Twain. But I, I, um, I just I read I read lots of different kinds of works, and, and I'm I'm, in, I'm enthralled by it. I I love Joyce, in one novel, and I won't say which one. In the middle of a kind of a ramble, I started recognizing several sentences in a row, and I searched and I searched, and they were actually um, they were actually in my head, and they came out verbatim from Ulysses. I left them in. <laughs> that's a proposed game to one of the to a listener to figure out in which Percival Everett book there are three sentences that are lifted directly from Ulysses. Oh yeah, well there you go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's for someone who has nothing better to do. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly worse ways to spend your time. <laughs> um, and maybe we could just go back to the endings here. Okay. Because we never, we, I don't think Dea and I have figured out if we did read the same book. So um, my, okay, so my ending was he, uh, Zach goes to New Mexico and gets the women onto a bus okay. and drives them almost across the border. But he does seem to, detective, the Mexican detective greets them at the border and they seem to arrive in to Mexico safely, perhaps. Kate, what did you have? I, I believe that's the same one that I read as well. Oh, no. I really wanted to, to know the other one, to know I another just, one. I wonder, could, could we get a preview of the, of the, of the ending that was the, so uh, wildly, wildly different? Percival, would you be willing to tell us what happened? I'm not sure I would get it right. Um, I, there is one version in which um, 
and I guess that would be a spoiler. There is one. Version, we can issue a spoiler alert. Uh, there is one version where, um, and I get, and I'll I'll say it because I I like the particular line that the um, the novel ends with. A uh, uh, one of the women is is has has been wounded, shot. Oh. And instead of going to the border, they go to an urgent care clinic. And the nurse at the desk or the representative at the desk says occupation to which um, mm-hmm. Zach responds is slave. Oh, wow. Wow. And is that how it ends? Yes. Wow. That is quite an ending. <laughs> Jeez. That's... I, it's so interesting that just because I, I think, you know, I just, I'm an editor. So I, I play fast and loose with other people's words. I have no sympathy in terms of like cutting things out or changing them and changing last sentence in particular, but for a writer to, you didn't feel any sense of attachment or regret letting that ending go in certain circumstances that this was that offering something else. No, there are different stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, I also think that it, People seem to comment on the way your books address race in a in a very uh, nuanced and and different ways depending on the novel. But that ending would certainly frame the book in a very different way, I think, than the one that I read. Yes, and it's it's and again, it's only a few words make that difference. Yeah, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, it's it's not. Um, even in the version that I read, the race is a is a subtle theme in this novel. I mean, you know, there are some protests at the university where there's where, where Zach works and um, about improving diversity um, among the staff, and and there are other instances, and it's very it's muted in a, in a way. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and. Um, about having it there, but de- depending on you know changing maybe the the levels of, of how much you want to have it be at the forefront. Well, being present makes it at the forefront. I think it surprises white America to find out that black people don't wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, "Oh yeah, I'm black." It's it doesn't come up until it comes up. There's a wonderful scene in, in Chester Himes novel, um, If He Hollers, Let Him Go, when the main character is simply sitting in his car, having a, a nice day, a wonderful day. He's sitting at a light and a, and a white man walks past him and gives him a stare. And the stare is one of racial hatred. But there's no interaction between them. But that's enough to, to ruin his morning. It's subtle. It's quiet, but it's pervasive. It's very seldom uh, neo-Nazis running into your neighborhood doing something. A very subtle American disease that can go from becoming, what is it, an osis to an isis. <laughs> is that how it works with, uh, with diseases? It becomes mm-hmm. inflamed. Yeah. yeah, and it seems like the, the flip side of that question of how how one can help another person is who can you ask for help? Because for Zach and the, uh, the Mexican 
women who have been enslaved by these white men in this New Mexico town, they cannot ask for help from any anyone, really, or from just anyone. And the people that end up helping Zach and these women are this sort of ragtag bunch of poets <laughs> um, from a little poetry workshop. It's an interesting group of allies that Zach really reluctantly kind of builds together because it's evident that not how one can help and who one can ask for help is an equally complicated and related question in some ways. Oh, yes. And movies aside, it's it's not good mercenaries who are going to come help us. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a dark place to end. <laughs> um, I don't I mean, it doesn't seem wrong, though. It, it's, it seems pretty accurate for the moment. The only thing I have to say about the present moment is it's really encouraging to see all these young people out here with such passion and, and, and conviction. I've been asked by a lot of journalists about for my comments about what's going on, and I really have nothing different to say from all of the talking heads on, on television. Uh, except to say that I am really proud of, 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 of these young people who are out here caring. Um, and I won't say anything because whereas this is our fight, it's their moment. And they're the ones we need to, they're, they're the ones I want to listen to. Not some old codger like me. I, I, I've been impressed with what they say and, and how they're saying it. And I really think that's where our focus should be. Well, thank you for talking to us, Percival. Um, oh, my pleasure. It's really been a pleasure. We've been speaking to Percival Everett. His latest book is called Telephone. Thank you again. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 